Hey everybody, welcome back to the Plow and Stars. So today we're doing our early April episode and we've begun the transition to the very important subject matter of deep class analysis of each and every Disney film from the classical Disney period, uh, the golden age of Disney. Uh, so we're going to take a look today at Beauty and the Beast. But first, I'd like to remind everybody listening that listening to the podcast is good, but listening to a podcast doing class analysis on Disney movies does not constitute activism. So we'd like to urge you to go forth and organize, join a party, and contact your local organizations. Or for that matter, you can contact us, either with questions and comments, uh, things that you want to hear in future episodes, the Disney movies you want us to analyze, or if you're looking for ways to organize in your area, you can contact us and we'll try to put you in touch with people. If you like the Plow and Stars, uh, follow us on Twitter at Plow and Stars. Send us an email at contact at plowandstarspod.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes and give us a rating and a review so we can get to more people. Or subscribe to us on Spotify. You can listen to us there as well. And we now have a Patreon page at patreon.com, whack, plow, and stars. So I'm the angry commie lawyer. I've lost several accounts now on Twitter. My current Twitter uh, identity is at punished cat dad. And with us, we have Red Bernard and Dr. Plague. It's Red. Hello, Red Bernard here. Uh, you can get me at Red Bernard on Twitter. I'm Dr. Plague, uh, the Dr. Plague on Twitter. I've tried to find some other easier, you know, handle uh, at to, and just all of them that are simpler are accounts that have taken them, but have not tweeted since like 2012. So I'm kind of stuck right now. <laughs> what we got to do is mass report all of those accounts. <laughs> all right, so let's let's dive right into this because this is very important for our for our April one episode, and that is Absolutely. what we're talking about: Beauty and the Beast, and we can do this initial kind of analysis to any of these movies and that is the framework at, of which we're viewing the story because that is the the western imperialist i would even go so far as to say ancien regime framework of looking at a rural french society around the end of the 18th century now we know for a fact that 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 is the correct time period partially from the cues uh, of what kind of weapons are available we see uh, blunderbuss we see uh, horse-drawn carriages existing at the same time. Uh, there's the short tunic and long, uh, long breeches, which are not stylish anymore. Uh, and all the villagers wear them because this is a kind of a backwards village. But you got your culottes, your your stylish short pants up in the up in the um, up in the castle, right? All your servants at the end of the movie are wearing your very fancy short uh, knee breeches and stockings which will eventually mark them out, right, as being members of the, the upper classes or even the towards the end of the century, the bourgeoisie will wear those to, to sort of glom on to the, and agglomerate to the upper classes. So when we're looking at the movie, we have to know that we're looking at it from this pro-ancien regime viewpoint. That is, everything has been warped and distorted in order to support the Disney view of the, the pro-ancien regime and what will eventually be pro-bourgeoisie. We're looking at a period immediately following the Seven Years' War, because remember Gaston has come back from a war, and that is the period leading up to the revolutionary agitation and organization inside France. So we don't have any of these fancy 
lawyers uh, or uh, you know the people that become the head of the revolution here in the little town that Bell lives in, all we have are the peasantry and the the uh, artisans, right? So we have only a handful of examples of these people. We have the baker, we have the bookshop owner. Uh, he's a little a little petit bourgeois. We have uh, we have Gaston. We have his little uh, his little clan that surrounds him of hunters and trappers, all of whom are on the cusp of being petit bourgeois. And we have Bell's father, who is the archetypical petit bourgeois, the uh, the inventor who invents for himself and and is off to make a name for himself. But uh, before we get too deep into the the town, I think it's important. And Doc is going to talk about the older, more uh, more feudal framework that's going on up at the castle. Because remember, towards the end of the French Ancien Regime, there's still this very powerful nobility in France, and they they control pretty much. I think it's um, sixty or seventy percent of the wealth in France, whereas the church holds the other uh, twenty to forty percent, and then the, your third estate is like a one or two percent stake. So uh, go ahead, Doc. Why don't you tell us about the beast and his position in class? Oh society. yeah. So, so he's. I mean, you know, obviously the most wealthy, most well-off uh, character in this story. Um, mm-hmm. You know, certainly one of the most materially powerful uh, characters. Mm-hmm. His, ho- uh, his house is like the size of the whole village, basically. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, just you, great halls and libraries bigger than Bell's house and, you know, just... Right, oh, serve, hordes of know, servants. Like, yeah, hordes of servants, absolutely, that's a great way to put it. Um, servants who have to share in his punishment, right, even though they didn't yeah, do anything wrong. Yes, exactly. So they are paying for his, uh, you know, greed, his selfishness, you know, with their their lives, their essence, essentially. Um, right. And so they kind of are trapped they're, in the servitude to him. They, they're literally objectified. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's right. They're literally objectified. They become objects. To him, like his objects are, are literally people. It is the perfect it is the perfect example of fetishization. You're, that's absolutely... I didn't think of that. That's 100% yeah. correct. He's commodified them down to their... their pure essence well, of the service they provide, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, although I do have to point out it's not that he did it, right? A witch did it to him, uh, but now he can't sure. see it. Like, And this was always the relation. It's just now become clear to everyone exactly what the relation is. Oh, for sure. <laughs> right. but, it, but the witch did it to him uh, on based on his actions, though. You know, that, mm-hmm. that needs to be, to be said, certainly. True. Um, but so you have all these people, you know, all his, his servants, you know, members of the working class, or, you know, maybe petite bourgeois, uh, you know, just kind of depending on how you want to look at it, you know, trapped in this, this cycle with him, uh, trapped in the state until his curse either runs out or, you know, as we see in the movie, Bell, uh, you know, breaks that curse. But then that right, that's the typical, that's yeah. the typical feudal construction, right? He's got to find a, he's got to find a wife to carry on the, the, the dynasty. Exactly. But then, I mean, at the end of the movie, the curse is broken, but that, essentially means if you think about it the continuation of their life means that they're again trapped in a de- another different cycle you know a feudal cycle where they again have to work to sustain themselves and to you know sustain the beast and his uh you know his lifestyle yeah who is now a terribly handsome prince but they're still his servants 
Right. And what's what's really the difference for say Lumiere uh, for being a, either a, a fucking candlestick or <laughs> or the maitre d of the house? He still has to perform the same task. And he still doesn't have any free time or whatever. Right. I, like he got back the use of his genitals. That's about the only difference. I can <laughs> Which is both a blessing and a curse, <laughs> particularly in that period. Uh, you don't know. I mean, a guy like Lumiere, he's probably got, you know, early stages of syphilis. Maybe being a candlestick had delayed the onset it of... Could be. <laughs> um, what I want to know about him and his servants, though, is, is like the scenes where he smashes some of his objects, he smashes some of his tables. Do we have any idea as to whether those are sentient or not? Oh, yeah. I or like, uh, like Chip, you know, the little cup. Yeah. Has that like big gash in the, in the side? Mm-hmm. Like, does that mean he's gonna have like a chunk of his skull missing when he like turns back into Ooh, a kid? Who knows? I, I think he actually has a chipped tooth at the at the end. Uh, that's the, uh, that's the metaphorical. That. Yeah, but I don't I don't know that we know whether any of the furniture he destroys is a person because uh, there's definitely a whole wing of the house covered in ruined stuff, and we right. there's no way for us to differentiate which of those things <laughs> like were after the curse people. Right, like after the curse is lifted, do you go back into that wing of the house and it's just full of corpses? Like, who knows, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's... And, and what's the difference, right? He, he has absolute power of justice over all of his servants, so he <laughs> treats them exactly the same as though they were, they were bureaus. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> so, so yeah, um, he is the uh, you know he is you know what we are are kind of proposing here is that is that beast is actually the villain you know the class villain right. of this story you know essentially right yeah. and let's I mean what does he do he behaves in a typical in a typical uh, feudal style he imprisons the father of the woman who he eventually is going to marry it, just like you know a feudal lord might hold somebody in a in a tower. He uh, basically, I mean, the whole relationship between them is a Stockholm syndrome relationship, and she yeah. becomes a class enemy or a class traitor uh, because he's got all his nice stuff. Yeah, I mean, uh, she she has no interest in him until she sees his like fancy house and his library and things. Oh yeah, right. And uh, at the end, there's a legitimate class grievance revolt that comes to his door, and he fights it off. Yep. Um, and that is led by Gaston, who I'll talk yes. about briefly. So Gaston is the uh, is the obvious hero of the story. Uh, you know, despite the the nefarious music that might play whenever he's on screen, um, you know, you can tell he 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 comes back to this small town as a as a hero, and everyone respects him. And you know what? He actually doesn't show any interest in anyone else except for the most intelligent uh, girl in town, uh, right. who is who is not at all interested in him. Which is you know that's fine. Um, uh, except that uh, when it comes to uh, the the kind of class relationship, um, you know, when when she does wind up being kind of taken hostage by the local lord, or, or rather her father is taken hostage and then whatever swaps, um, you know, when it does come to that class revolt that you talk about, you know, that that's when, uh, again, he comes across as a real villain, when in fact what he's really doing is he's trying to overthrow a literal monster who is their right. lord, who lives in a castle and, and, and has all these servants, and uh, takes hostages at his whim, um, and let's—I mean—the village has been running itself, right? He's—he's yeah. he's locked himself. The beast has locked himself in his his weepy portion of the manor, and meanwhile, the village—we don't ever see what their governance system is like, but one has to assume that it's just basically a small-scale anarchic commune. 
Right, that they've yeah. been doing because they've been doing fine, and like the beast is their local law, and he doesn't exist. Like he he, he is uh, in abstentia for for presumably right. the past several years. Mm-hmm. But we see the sto- the show. They're thriving. Spot. Yeah, yeah. The the town has got sheep. It's got food. It's got bread. It's got eggs. It's got enough eggs to feed not only Gaston, who eats more than every <laughs> other villager. <laughs> it has enough eggs to also feed him and the village. So production is great. <laughs> And look at all the books that they have. Yeah, this oh, yeah, is a, they've got a, like a thriving town. culture. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's a beautiful what, little village. What happened? Their lord disappeared, and they 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 became thriving because they had self governance. Yep. <laughs> and so the, the the idea that they need this this prince to look over them is obviously false, based off of all that we see in the beginning of the movie. Clearly. I mean, it's all about the material, the material relations, right? And the material stuff that's going on is just fine. Whatever about the uh, the ideology, about they need law or something like that, obviously that is false. Correct. And we we understand, you know, that Gaston may not be... He, he is really the hero, but his... Uh, his chasing after Bell may be unseemly, oh, but you have very to... sketchy. <laughs> like, yes. for sure, he is not like a nice or whatever, not like a not like a lovely human being. But he right. is but... Uh, the 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 whatever the the class hero, right? Mm-hmm. One has to expect, particularly when there's um, when there's a liminal situation like this, that there's going to be admixtures of progressive and regressive elements in every. Uh, in every revolt. So Gaston perfectly embodies the fact that he is a progressive force, but he yeah. himself is filled with progressive elements. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's, there's the perfect the perfect analogy. Right. Well, um, I'm glad everybody could join us uh, for this analysis. Of, yes, this highly important class analysis of Beauty and the Beast. You should definitely bring this up at your next gathering with your family and tell them that Gaston is the is the hero and that the Beast is the class enemy of every other character in the movie. Yeah, uh, we're, we'll And then it's really a tragedy uh, that he got he's away with it and then was able to continue doing just as he had been for years, except now he's just not a monster. Although or he doesn't look like a monster. You should, you should keep in mind that it, it has a tragic ending, but if you draw it out on a long enough timeline, in a couple of years, the Beast, although he's been transformed back into a man, is going to find himself either in flight in Russia or underneath the axe of the People's Razor. That's a very good the, point. The revolution is coming. And you know what? Uh, if he was still a monster, if he was still a, the Beast, you know, he might actually have been able to, to do some serious harm in that case. But as just a man, you know, maybe he uh, maybe maybe it's actually a good thing in the end that he turned back into a person. That's right. It makes him it makes him something that the revolution can handle instead yeah. of a werewolf, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and I like to think that this village is in the Vendée and that he's going to be part of the war in the Vendée, and that's going to be a whole thing because uh, this this guy just seems like. First of all, you know. He's a devout Catholic based off of the way he reacts to the witch. So, like, yeah, for sure. Guy, basically. <laughs> all right. So, thank you. Thank you all for joining us. We're going to have uh, a new episode, hopefully not on the class analysis of The Lion King, but rather our second episode <laughs> on the worker state. Uh, if you have any comments or questions that you'd like us to answer in that episode, we're going to be focusing on the USSR, the material conditions uh, of the Russian Empire uh, around the end of World War One. sort of how that all fomented and happened and the kinds of construction that needed to be done in order to reach the state, the worker state that uh, took over after the October Revolution. So it's going to be a very deep history dive. If you have questions, comments, anything you want us to answer, if you want to come on the, the pod and talk about it, please do. 
contact us and we will see if we can get you on again our twitter handle is at plow and stars you can contact us there dm us uh, just tweet to us or you can email contact at plow and or you can contact any of us individually on twitter or wherever else you may know us and we will hopefully get your questions worked in to the episode i'm not sure when it's going to be out yet we still have to record it and everything it's going to be a little longer than the than this episode hopefully uh it, because it's going to be very detailed so look out for that uh go out do some organizing tell your family that gaston is the hero and the beast is the villain and we'll right. uh, we'll see you next time and join us again on the plow and stars for our critical analysis this time hopefully uh of the ussr instead of the <laughs> gosh it disturbs me to see you gaston looking so down in the dumps Every guy here'd love to be you, Gaston, even when taking your lumps. There's no man in town as admired as you, you're everyone's favorite guy. Everyone's awed and inspired by you, and it's not very hard to see why. No one slick as Gaston, no one's quick as Gaston, no one's next as incredibly thick as Gaston, for there's no man in town half as manly, perfect up your paragon, you can ask any Tom, Dick, or Stanley, and they'll tell you whose team they prefer to be on. No like Gaston, a big like Gaston. No one's got a swell cleft in his gym like Gaston. As a specimen, yes, I'm intimidating. I That's nobody fights like Gaston For there's no one as burly and brawny As you see, I've got biceps to spare Not a bit of him scraggly or scrawny That's right, and every last inch of me's covered with hair No one hits like Gaston in a spitting match, nobody spits like Gaston. I'm especially good at expectorating. <laughs> when I was a lad, I ate four dozen eggs every morning to help me get large. And now that I'm grown, I eat five dozen eggs, so I'm roughly the size of a barge. And goes tromping around wearing boots like Gaston. I use antlers in all of my decorating. I wanna get